Hey, Kareem Sirajuddin here, founder of Nude Human Consulting. The Coffee with Kareem podcast aims to provide Muslims and people of all backgrounds a space to share their life gifts, meet dynamic guests, and enhance the human experience one cup of coffee at a time. Sit back and sip. Episode 13, Yin and Yang. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. Today I have Dr. Muhammad Ghilan. He is a Canadian Muslim originally born in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, to parents from Sudanese and Yemeni backgrounds. He attended high school after immigrating to Canada in Vancouver, British Columbia. Eventually, Muhammad moved to Victoria where he obtained a Bachelor's of Science with a major in microbiology and a minor in business administration. Dr. Muhammad, thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. It's an honor to be invited to be on your show, Karim. Thank you. Thank you. The honor is mine. So I understand that you also um, completed a PhD in neuroscience at the University of Victoria. Most uh, That was in 2015. And now you're in Australia doing a whole other degree. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Went from PhD in neuroscience into medicine now. Subhanallah. So, so why why did you uh, decide to study medicine after already having you know uh, a PhD in neuroscience, which isn't a, a small feat? Um, there is. Uh, I mean, I've I've talked about this before. I know some of the listeners um, may have heard this before, so it might be boring for them. But for those who haven't heard, um, there is a, a value to practiced knowledge that is not really recognized with uh, for a lot of people. Uh, towards the end of my PhD. Although I engaged actively in research and, and conducting experiments and, and finding results and doing all that stuff, the specific syndromes that I was studying, I was looking at Huntington's disease, I was looking at uh, autism spectrum disorders, more specifically I was studying fragile X syndrome. I was looking at a mouse model for a lot, you know, mo- different mouse models for these things and doing the research on that. Um, but I never actually engaged you know, face-to-face and interacted with an actual patient with Huntington's disease Mm. or an actual patient with autism spectrum disorder. A lot of that knowledge that I had about these diseases was gained through reading about them um, and just, you know, researching just through uh, basically secondhand. Um, Now, I I had some really interesting findings. It was really exciting. I got published with it uh, in a nice international peer-reviewed journal uh, journals, but there was this thing in the back of my mind that really bothered me. It was that, you know, you're studying this thing, but you've never actually interacted with the patients. And um, there is a, I'm sure people have heard of or have seen something on TV or in a show where you have the surgeon working really hard in surgery and um, the patient reacts in some really adverse way. And against all advice and protocol and clinical guidelines, the surgeon decides to go against the grain and does something else that saves the patient. Mm. Now, when they're asked afterwards, why did you do that? What was the reasoning behind it? Oftentimes in real life, not in TV land, but in real life, the surgeon will tell you, I don't know. I just had a feeling. Wow. Um, Now, that feeling comes about from years of practice. And you usually see these things happening with people that have been practicing for a long time. 20, 30 years practicing. And it's, it's just through heuristics that their brain has formed. You know, the, the brain itself, 70% of the neurons in the cells of your brain are in the cerebellum, the mm. back of your head, mm. which is involved in motor function, coordination, all of that stuff. And um, so only 30% is your cerebrum, you know, the stuff that we think about with cognitive function and whatnot. Right. So there's this knowledge that you gain from just merely engaging in practice, just doing things. And... Um, that was my problem. You know, you read these accounts from physicians, neurologists, and it's it's nice, but I, I there's a bit of me that doesn't completely trust that everything has been said about something. Um, you know, and that's really the progress of science and any and any field really. It's just people noticing things that other people have missed, and I didn't like that I was relying completely on people that. Uh, report these syndromes to me and I wasn't engaged firsthand to it. So that's really the main driver, if you will, or one of the main drivers for me going into medicine. I see. 
I do want to pick your your brain today, sir, about um, one a topic that's very fascinating to me, and I think is is of utmost importance, especially in you know the times that we live in, and, and certain narratives that we are hearing, uh, specifically in Western societies regarding men and women, gender roles, sexuality. Um, so I wanted to get you know right down into the um, the subject matter of male and female brains today, and perhaps how this can teach us more things about the different. Differences uh, between us, and also um, how this may actually manifest in our daily lives, or at least some examples of it. Of course, I think uh, when everyone who's listening knows that when we're going to be talking about some of these things, we're going to be talking about you know um, what I like to call perhaps like the bell curve. You know that a lot of these principles do kind of uh, f- find themselves in the middle, but there's always exceptions to the rule. There's always you know circumstances that aren't quite uh, so. However, there seems to always be general trends and patterns in the world of science and nature at large. So that's kind of uh, the angle that I want to um, take it from, inshallah. So first and sure. foremost. Um, now, anybody, I mean, again, <laughs> it's changing today, but anybody who sees a man and a woman knows that biologically there is a difference uh, in their physical yeah. in their physical structure, right? And, yeah. you know, when I was in university, I remember, you know, we, they were also teaching us that, you know, um, a lot of why there's this kind of masculine and feminine energy has a lot to do with socialization and not necessarily uh, a biological or neurological basis. But Mm. um, I've never, you know, found that to be uh, um, settling. And of course, there's a lot of uh, data to um, represent otherwise. And there there seemed to be kind of a, a slow shift coming uh, back to this. I mean, recently I saw, you know, some uh, publications on um, from Stanford uh, School of Medicine. Um, there's mm-hmm. a couple of articles up on Psychology Today that I'm going to link up. But people, you know, are coming back to this idea of, you know, come on, there's a lot of data here that does strongly suggest there are some, some differences between the male and female brain. And I wondered if you agree with that and uh, maybe we can start with with uh, talking a bit about what some of those uh, might be and and what uh, evidence is there to to suggest such uh, views well if you um, the, the the problem with science there's a multiple multiple levels to discuss this the first one is just talking about the science of it um, there is some debate between you know different labs and the debate is about whether the tool that they're using to measure these brain dif- differences is specific enough, is sensitive enough, it's valid. Um, the population itself that is being chosen to measure these things, um, does it apply across the board? Um, just the difficult task of looking at these differences with something like the brain itself, which is not a static organ. Um, there's, there's all of these issues. So for if you are talking to somebody who wants to negate the differences between men and women when it comes to brain studies, you're going to have a bit of a challenge because for every study you cite, they can cite you a different study that says, well, this other people didn't find the difference that you are claiming is valid. And they're both in peer-reviewed journals. So you're left kind of this confused state of, well, which one is which? Um, so that's one, that's one level that we have to kind of like acknowledge. And my 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 uh, side uh, nerdy footnote is we still also are just scratching the surface about the brain as an organ. Period. Exactly. That's that's another thing. Yeah. Um, so that's that's just that's one level of it. The second level of it is um, the assumption of the question itself. You know, differences between men and women when it comes to their brains. Um, it assumes that the brain is an organ that can be thought of in the same way as other organs in the human body are. Um, that it's static, it's uniform, but to a large extent, um, you have clearly defined functions for that organ or maybe parts of the organ. So you can look at the pancreas, whichever side of the pancreas you're looking at, whichever lobe. Um, just these are some cells that produce some hormones, and then you have. Uh, predictable effects for these hormones when it comes to digestion, for example. Um, To think of the human brain in the same way is problematic because the brain is not like that. To some degree, it is true when it comes to motor and sensory modalities, for example. So there are clearly defined tracts in the human brain or in the brain in general that needed to be set in place for us to be able to navigate the world. Imagine every time that you opened your eyes, um, your, your brain had to transmit that sensory information, that sensory visual information through a different pathway every time 
or that if every time you wanted to pick up something from the ground, your nervous system had to engage different nerve tracks every single time to achieve the same task. You just would not survive in the wild. Um, and so what ended up happening, if you go with an evolutionary, par- par- evolutionary paradigm to explain this, is that your brain had to evolve some stable nerve tracts for the sensory and motor pathways so that you can engage uh, with a high degree of efficiency and reliability uh, when it comes to these functions because they deal with your physical survival. And so it has these tracks there. They still, and so when we talk about the brain being wired, that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about these sensory and motor modalities that are wired for that. They still retain a level of malleability. And that malleability is what we call in the field neuroplasticity. In other words, that it's um, subject to some changes, not to agree, a great degree of changes, but to some changes. And these changes are the ones that you get to see um, let's say you just started to pick up uh, a musical instrument. At first, it's kind of hard, awkward to press on a piano keys, for example, or to get the coordination right. Uh, but then after time of practice, you find your fingers are nimble. They can move really quickly. They're much easier. You can pick up more complex movements. The reason you're able to do that is because your motor tracts and your sensory tracts were able to adapt to some degree to do this movement. Um, another uh, thing is jujitsu, for example. Jujitsu is a very, grappling in jujitsu is a very cerebral thing. Um, it requires a lot of strategy and, and thinking about what you're doing and, and feel so that you know where the body of your opponent is so that you can put him in the proper lock or so that you can save yourself from being locked up in a position that you have to tap out from. All of that is your brain. As you practice more, you get better at it, you get faster at it, um, and that's where you get better performance and advancement, but it's still limited. The rest of the brain, however, when it comes to cognitive function, if you put somebody in an MRI today, right? We're talking coffee with Kareem. Let's say that this is the first thing you have in the day, you have your coffee, and then I put you on an MRI, you haven't had food or anything, you just woke up from eight hours of sleep, and I ask you some questions, and you answer these questions, and I just measure what happened in the brain MRI. If I bring you tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after, seven days in a row, with the same pattern, you know, same eight hours of sleep, you went to bed the same time. We've standardized every single thing you've done, and I ask you exactly the same questions. I will not be able to replicate the same brain regions for your answers. Fascinating. Even if you give the same answers, and that's a big problem. In fact, a lot of what we talk about when we talk about brain differences, when we're trying to correlate that with cognitive function, all it is, it's, um, uh, you're familiar with Francis Gall and phrenology? No, tell me about him. So Francis Gall uh, was this um, physician, and he came up with this theory. This was a development through time with regards to what makes humans humans and how can you predict if somebody's going to be a criminal or not or an artist or not or a scientist or not. And he looked at uh, skulls, different skulls, and he looked at prisoners, for example, and he just tried to come up with this, what we call now pseudoscience, but at his time, he felt that it was scientific enough that I can look at the skull of somebody and look at bumps in their skull. And these bumps represent areas of the brain that grew because they were engaged in some activity. And so now if I see a bump in your frontal lobe or if I see your frontal lobe is a little bit too big or too small or whatever, I can predict what type of behavioral engagement. And then I can say this person is going to be a criminal or this person is going to be a liar. And so he had these areas of uh, highlighted in the skull that shows This is the area for creativity, and this is the area for being indecisive, and so on and so forth. Now, you know, push forward in time, we now look at Francis Gall and his work as pseudoscientific. It sounds scientific, but there's no basis for it. There was no replicability. People tried to show it. Um, It just didn't work out, and it was just a lot of rhetoric and, and showmanship on his part. That is actually what we're doing today with a lot of these brain scans that look at cognitive behavior. Uh, we've basically taken Francis Gall's map and we just moved down a level from the, the bones of the skull to the flesh of the actual brain. And we've, yeah, we've superimposed these things. But if you look at the variability within the individual, intra-individual variability, as well as inter-individual variability, and you just mix the populations. So take studies that look at men and women, for example, and see any differences. You can literally just mix the populations together and just come up with a a heterogeneous population, have them grouped into two different groups, and you'll come up with significant differences, Uh, just like you came up with significant differences when you separated them by gender. 
Um, so it's not going to tell you much. All it tells you is that you've come up with some differences. And usually these differences from these studies are very minute. They're, they might be significant mathematically in a way that I can publish a paper out of it. But if I go in the real world, this is not something that really matters. Um, and it doesn't, again, correlation versus causation. And this work is, um, there's a book uh, by the late William Utah. Um, uh, I can't recall the specific title. It's highly technical, but he dedicates a whole chapter into the statistics of MRIs and why it's a problem and how it's really just a pseudoscience that, you know, just having pretty pictures and articles is what's convincing people. But if you look at the specific data, the data is not convincing in that sense. So that's another issue to deal with when you're talking about, um, you know, brain difference between men and women. Can we predict or see things that are different between them based on looking just at these things? So, Dr. Muhammad, that, that's really fascinating. And uh, I'm going to try to summarize here what I understood. Uh, so the first uh, point that you mentioned why, um, you know, data around the differences between male and female brains uh, isn't quite crystal clear or black and white uh, is is because of the following. Number one, according to evolutionary biology, um, you mentioned that human beings generally, when it comes to pathways in the brain that has to do with motor skills, in other words, how we move um, our coordination, you know, you gave the example of learning a martial art or an instrument, the, the brain is able to adapt or have this malleability, also known as neuroplasticity. However, the changes are, you know, small, so to speak. It's not like you can go and, and completely replace the circuitry of somebody's brain like you could for a computer. It's like, a, it's just a few um, aspects of it, so to speak. Is that correct? The first point you made? That is correct. Yes. Okay. And the second uh, point you mentioned was when it comes to cognitive processing, which means, you know, how human beings understand, uh, interpret, assimilate, and accommodate information in their minds, um, we find that even with one individual, if you give them a type of uh, a series of tests where all the conditions and standards are exactly the same, like you repeated and replicated the same exact conditions, you'll still find different activity in the brain regions of the participant. Um, and that, of course, gives you this, you know, huge uh, mystery of like, well, I don't get it. You know, why are there why are the responses or the or why is the activity of the brain different, even though I did my best to replicate the same exact experiments and line of questioning? Is that correct? That's true. Yes. So 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 even there's so much variability within just an individual case study, let alone, you know, many men or many women or comparing the two genders. That was the yes. second point. And the third point, which I'm hearing you say is we are also still not, of course, the tools that we have, the instruments that we have and the um, methods of experimenting are still so limited that it would be very difficult to, quote unquote, absolutely prove anything at this time would you say that's accurate yeah i mean in science we don't use we don't like to use the word prove uh, we talk about evidence so we don't have strong evidence to make the conclusion that um uh, you know when you're looking at these cognitive tasks and looking at brain activity correlated with them that you can come up with a final conclusion about definitely speaking this is uh, uh, you know, an essential difference between the male and the female brain. Okay. Now, let me ask you this. So let's let's try to bring it to day-to-day -day life for some people, because some, some people might be listening and go, well, you know what? I've experimented and replicated, you know, <laughs> my wife's reactions to certain yeah. things, or, or, or <laughs> I, I, I've replicated or, or observed over and over again and found it more likely that, you know, boys on the playground are going to act like this versus girls on the playground, right? So is, it, would that be mm -hmm. considered, I mean, isn't science also about what's observable and what is uh, predictable because of those observations? Well, now you're talking about just people's behavior. And so if you notice differences in behavior like that, that's, uh, that's perfectly uh, fine for you to make a conclusion about it, that when I see boys in the playground or I see girls on the playground, this is what I see, an emergence of differences in behavior. You have to remember that in science, we deal in populations. We never deal with individuals. So if somebody's talking about, well, I see my wife doing this all the time, that's what we call in science jargon, N of one. So mm -hmm. you, you're looking at one individual and that might be valid anecdotally with your relationship. This is how your wife or your husband behaves. Okay. Um, and you can go with that. But uh, if you want to talk, make general statements about a population of boys or girls or men or women, 
Um, you can see patterns emerge, but that never says anything about individuals. Right. Yeah. Because there's also groupthink and, and there is that aspect of socialization. I mean, exactly. the role of socialization is not zero and the role of biology and neurology is not zero. Right? Definitely. But it's yeah. but it's hard to determine exactly what has what. And for each individual, that's also going to be different. Is that correct? Precisely the case, yes. Okay. So based on science, are there things that are, let's say, more valid than not or more likely to be the case when it comes to male and female brain differences? And if so, are there any examples that you might be able to share with us today? So there, uh, when it comes to science, because um, uh, and I mentioned this in, a, in an episode of my podcast where I talked about what is the role of scientific research with regards to brain differences. And you'll find that uh, for heart sciences, we're more interested in medical stuff. So we're interested in finding out, well, why are, for example, women, there's a paper from McGill University, um, PNAS paper, um, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, for those who don't know, um, from McGill University that showed, for example, the rate of serotonin synthesis in normal males were found to be 52% higher than in normal females. Um, and that was posited to explain, for example, the low incidence of major unipolar depression in males. Because we know that uh, just from population studies that women are more than twice um, as likely as men to suffer from anxiety and depressive disorders. Correct. So Yeah. So we, we have studies that look at stuff like that, for example. We have – there's another paper that looked at um, – um, the, the impact of the differences was seen in another paper from looking at autism. How come you have autism more prevalent in males than you do with females? Right. And the and Cambridge University there was another paper from in the journal Science where they looked at that and they said, well, we know that just population level speak that females are stronger empathizers and males are stronger sy systemizers. Males are more interested more in things and categories whereas females are more interested in relationships. And that seems to correlate with some brain differences with regards to the limbic circuit. So they looked at uh, the anatomy of uh, the male population of uh, boys and uh, the girls' population, and they just found that you have more of a male anatomy uh, being, going to an extreme extent when it comes to boys with autism. And you also see the brain itself having more male characteristics with girls with autism. Um, another paper that I can mention just as a final one here, but there's plenty of them, uh, from the University of Pennsylvania just a couple of years ago, 2014. Um, they looked at the female brain connectome, so just the way that the, the, the neurons connect with each other, and they looked at the male connectomes. And they found that male brains are optimized for intrahemispheric communication. In other words, you know you have the brain two hemispheres, two lobes. Uh, in the cerebrum, they found that males are optimized. The connections in male brains are optimized for individual cere cerebral communication. So, kind of like front. So, is that kind of like visualizing the left hemisphere and right hemisphere? The connection or communication is from front to back. Is that one way to visualize it? Yeah, that's yeah. Front to back for the males, it just wants to stay in one hemisphere. It's optimized for that. There is communication between the hemispheres, but it's not as good as females. Mm -hmm. Females have the connection between the two hemispheres is called the corpus callosum. That's the white tracts that go through. It's very thick in females. And that has a relationship to testosterone levels. Testosterone actually thins that out. Interesting. So female brains seem to have a better – they they're more optimized for this inter-hemispheric inter communication, so uh, side to side right. uh, between the two hemispheres. So the conclusion they drew from that is – it looks like male brains are structured to facilitate connectivity between perception and coordinated action, whereas female brains are designed to facilitate communication between analytical and intuitive processing modes. So that's just like just a couple of examples of what studies are out there for that and just kind of correlating, oh, we see these brain hormones and, and brain neurotransmitters being released, and it seems to be correlated with this thing. We know that, for example, males are more prone to um, uh, schizophrenia, schizotype disorders. They're more prone to suicide versus females who are not. They're more into the anxiety and depressive disorder side. Uh, Antisocial type of uh, mental disorders, they are more prevalent in the males than they are in the females. And so you see these things, and, and researchers try to look at brain studies, and, and they have correlated differences in different brain areas but in diseased conditions. Mm. I got to keep that. You know, We're not talking about healthy population now. We're talking about diseased conditions and how it manifests more commonly 
between in men versus women or in women versus men. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I remember like back in undergrad taking psych and like, they, you know, they taught us the story of Phineas Gage, you know, this famous character. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. He was like like a railroad railroad uh, worker. And uh, there was an explosion in this huge metal bar you know, went through his head, basically. Um, and people thought he was going to die, but uh, it turned out he was, you know, seemed normal at first, but then later they found, um, you know, different uh, behaviors and, and aggression issues and so on and so forth. Long story short, one of the things that they taught us was for many, you know, when neuroscience and studying the brain was happening at first, they had to study mostly male brains who are, you know, veterans or uh, people who are in these types of accidents to kind of get a sense sense of when something isn't working, uh, that's how they would learn about what parts of the brain uh, were responsible for certain behaviors or, or mental faculties. And, and and then they started to actually look into mm -hmm. female brains after that. And one case I remember, I don't remember the specifics of it, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. You know, they found that when males suffered from um, language uh, inability to comprehend or, or articulate language um, and they had certain regions of the brain that were damaged uh, they also found that when females had the same part of that brain damaged it didn't impact their language skills at all which you know led to this conclusion that the the female brain also has more regions of the brain or perhaps a broader area of it responsible for um, language but that was like back in the 90s so there may be some differences today as far as uh, research we actually see that when it comes to uh, for example stroke patients the post-stroke uh, focal neurological um, deficits Males suffer more from stroke than females do, and it is posited um, this study that I just quoted with the connectome, you know, intra versus interhemispheric connections. It is posited that females benefit from having extensive interhemispheric connections that allows them to recruit more areas of the brain to facilitate cognitive functions um, in a way that spares them. Uh, versus males who are basically, you know, if you have one side of your brain damaged, you don't have as much to draw on from your brain as females do, which is kind of ironic given that on average male brains are larger. Um, they just don't have as much to draw on because of the lack of connection between this larger uh, real estate area. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting, this Phineas Gage uh, example you cited. We know now that um, the, another big difference between men and women, which I, I guess you can – Maybe justify an explanation for something with regards to your work with uh, marriage counseling. Um, we know that the frontal cortex uh, finishes making its connections and developing for females around 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And for males, that happens more around 24, 25 years old. Right. So technically speaking, you know, if you have a five-year gap between the man and the woman in favor of the man, you're talking about uh, – uh, more equal age, brain age-wise, <laughs> between the men and the women versus having them exactly the same age, you know what I mean? Right, which may suggest why a lot of cultures had that practice of, of marrying, you know, women that were usually five to ten years younger than them, right? Yeah. Um, which is interesting. And and you always hear this too, like, oh, girls mature faster, right? And, yeah. and female infants um, tend to be uh, quicker at learning language, right? And, and forming uh, adult sentences earlier than boys, whereas boys also um, tend to have uh, more motor skills, uh, right. advancement in motor skills. So there are some, some, you know, noticeable things, I think, for anyone out there who's a parent or observes even their own family members, cousins, etc., that mm -hmm. there are sometimes these like things that like look pretty clear, right? But then yeah. there's but then there's also cases where you have girls, um, you know, that aren't as uh, like I was also a teacher, by the way, in, in schools mm. for about five years, and I and I would notice this trend that boys would generally um, be more inclined to math and science. And the yeah. females would be more inclined to social studies and language. But I also found that the females were, um, in general, just more studious, if if you will, like just better yeah. at organizing and paying attention and, and helping others in the classroom. Um, and the boys, of course, had generally more aggression and so on and so forth. But it wasn't always the case, right? You still had the boys who were more sensitive or, or um, less aggressive and uh, and then, of course, cases where uh, either gender were just very good at all subject matters, you know? So you always get a variation, it seems like. 
You do get a variation, and um, you know, just to draw on from an Islamic uh, concept here, um, in Arabic we call the human being al-hayawanun natiq. You know, the Arabs call the human being as the articulate animal, and so there is this understanding that part of you is an animal, and part of you is this intellect, the spirit, the soul. You know, all the different uh, parts that uh, go beyond your animal nature. But if we just look at your animal nature and just let people kind of behave, in tri- uh, almost kind of. Uh, just reactively, you know, just go engage through the process of life. There's an interesting observation you can uh, get or insights you can get from evolutionary biology that could provide some sort of explanation to why you see these differences in the classroom. Um, uh, it's a couple of things. The first one is, for example, if I give you 50 mates as a man, I bring you 50 women. Sounds You're, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds great for a lot of guys. And for a lot of guys, you ask them 50 women, they, within a single, you know, maybe it'll take them a couple of days depending on how, <laughs> how much of a man they think they are, but they can actually um, uh, gen- have 50 kids out of this uh, transaction. If we look at it, it's just a pure transaction. 50 mates for one male can generate 50 offspring. But if we bring 50 mates for one female, at most, it's going to be maybe a twin or a triplet, but you're looking at one conception. Is it true that like in this model, if you have a woman who's, let's say, you know, she has sexual relations with 50 men, how does the body determine which sperm will be accepted? Is it just whoever uh, hit the egg first or is there actually a mechanism in the female body which can actually reject um, certain sperm from from men uh, uh, versus others is that is that am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, the 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 most current research that looks at this because before they thought it was just a random thing, but the most current research is that the female's body has a role to play in selecting which specific sperm does the fertilization. Um, we don't know the details of it. We don't know exactly how that happens, but it seems to be the case that there is some selection pressure that the female body does exert without the conscious uh, interference of the female herself into this. So that's one thing. Now look at 50 mates, 50 mates. What is the investment on the part of the male to generate 50 offspring versus the investment on the part of the female to generate one out of 50 mates? What do you mean by investment? Like what does he have to do? Investment as in like what is the effort? What is the time? What is the physical investment, the time investment? What does it take for the guy to generate 50? Well, he, he would, uh, yeah, he would have to try to procreate with each uh, female. Yeah. So for each offspring, it's just a few minutes for the guy. It's not, that, it's not that complicated. For the woman, on the other hand, it's nine months. She has to go through a pregnancy, give birth, and then to ensure the survival of that offspring for her. Because for the guy, it's a few minutes whether that offspring survives or not is irrelevant if you think about it just from economics perspective. I did not put that much investment into this. So if that offspring does not survive, it's not that big of a deal. It's a big a deal it's a big of a deal in the sense of I want my genes to propagate and stuff. But physical, emotional, all of that, I didn't really put that much investment into this, so I can move on and I can try something else. If this one doesn't survive, I can try again. It's okay for me. But for the woman, after nine months, she is now motivated to ensure the survival of this offspring. And so she will, evolutionary speaking, women will put in more effort um, to ensure the survival of the offspring because it took a lot of investment to bring that offspring into the world. And so from uh, if you try to use an evolutionary insight to explain behavior in the classroom, why are women more engaged in social activity, co- uh, collaboration, things like that? It's because all of that is a byproduct of this evolutionary history of making sure that you have collaboration and care and, and concern and emotional investment and all of that with the offspring. So that manifests, the idea here is that that manifests now in what we see in social behavior. Whereas for males, what do they have to do? Ensure that the territory is protected, mark the borders of your territory. If anybody comes through, you're going to make sure that you fight them and kill them off if you can. So from that, you get this current social behavior of why do you see more proclivity to aggression amongst males than you do amongst females? Because evolutionary speaking, that was the advantageous behavior for males. Right. In other words, conquest for, for men and for women, it's nurturing. And for men, also, there's this idea of competition and women want more security, which ends up coming up a lot in my relationship work. I mean, top. I mean, even from the 
you know, research I collected with over 100 couples that I worked with, top needs of women tend to be the same. You know, of course, there's variation, but the top fee t- tend to be security, openness and honesty, financial support, affection and love. A lot of these things that, you know, has to do with these relational, emotional um, aspects of the human experience. Whereas men, it's more so about, you know, sexuality and attractive spouse, admiration and respect, um, domestic support, uh, and sometimes even companionship. Like men want a woman who will do stuff with him, like, you know, go canoeing or, or, or watch the basketball game, etc., which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there, these patterns that you note and that we see in the research, whether there are brain differences or not, um, if we do find them, great. If we don't, I mean, correlation and causation is a very tricky subject to get into. Um, but that does not negate, even if we don't see brain differences, that doesn't negate that we do see differences in behavior um, in population level research. So is this, is this, um, I mean, so this kind of, we might, uh, sidetrack a bit here, but okay. That what came up for me when you gave this example of the 50, 50 was, all right. So does that mean that there's a biological inclination for men to be, uh, have multi-partners? I mean, anthropologically speaking, we see a lot of, um, uh, we see a lot of evidence of this, right? That a lo- many societies and cultures, even if they weren't the males weren't all practicing, um, you know, polygamy. Uh, they at least, uh, the cultures uh, recognized it as an acceptable and viable uh, way of life, so to speak. Do you think there is a biological basis to it, or is it also one of those things where you can't be sure? Well, if you can, if you, if you want to use a, I mean, there is no, it's hard to say that this is the case, but you can give a case for it uh, using an evolutionary model, which is evolution is about propagation of, ge- of genetic material. And the more advantageous your activity is to ensuring the propagation of your genetic material, the more likely that you're going to see it. So for the male side of things, um, you know, if I can have my genetic material going through 50 different uh, streams, the likelihood of ensuring that my genetic material is going to last and sustain and go on is much higher than if I just had one. Right. You know, all it needs is one disaster and then that one is gone. But if I have 50 then I'm going to make sure that some of them are going to survive for sure. Right. And the likelihood of them survive, your family surviving increases because you have more offspring, which means you have more access for resources and capability to, to gather resources, right? Exactly. Which, which actually helps the female need of security. Mm-hmm. And that's why you see in um, – I mean I, I have friends and – uh, who come from places like Ghana, Nigeria, you know, and not all Muslims, by the way, I have Christian friends, and they come from tribes, and their parents are like the dad would be the chief of the tribe, and you hear that the dad would have like seven wives or eight wives or nine wives, and it's they all live together. There's not like yeah, of course you'll have the jealousy and all of that there, but it's part of their culture and it's recognized that this is what you do. Um, and as the family grows, they all collaborate together and they have this kind of cohesive system that's working out for them. So they don't have the sensitivities that we have in the West against that. We've, uh, the, the Western world has taken up this, um, you know, I guess it's like the, from the Catholic tradition that it's just one man, one woman, and that's it. And we assume that that is the quote unquote moral imperative. And if you go outside of that, then you have a problem. <laughs> Yeah, but nowadays we st- in the West, I feel like we're still practicing polygamy all the time. It's just not through marriage. I mean, well, of course, this is, yeah, this is well known, right? Guys, you know, yeah. want to get as many women as they can, and you know, having affairs and, and mistresses is very common in, in a lot of different cultures. You know, it's also uh, even acceptable to some extent in some cultures, yeah. right? As long as he comes home, you know, um, he's a man, right? And there is that attitude in, in certain yeah. cultures. So, I mean, w- polygamy is still there. It's just not, you know, um, sanctified through marriage, so to speak. So, exactly. I just, I just yeah. wanted to challenge you on that because it's not like oh, no, we're, no, we're no. so we're so monogamous <laughs> in America or in the West either, are we? And nowadays, yeah, yeah. that's changing right. with females too. That's changing with females too. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, we've desacralized relationships to such a degree that it's. Yeah, you're right. It's just. Um, I think it was. I think the only way we can speak about it in a sanctified way would be only up until about the 50s, and then after the 50s, things just started going downhill um, with the sexual revolution and whatnot. Well, according to 
It, it, it depends on your worldview, of course. It depends on your worldview. Yeah, if you don't see the, I mean, what is sacred, right? Like, not everybody even recognizes the sacred. When we talk about sanctified and whatnot, we're assuming a theological shared basis between us to talk about what is sacred and what is not. Now, how, how, what's your knowledge about the, the fetal development? Because I've also read some interesting th- articles and, and books in the past about how even in the fetal level, the brain makes up its mind, so to speak, as far as if it's going to be a male or a female. And this, of course, has a lot to do with the X and Y chromosome um, that is carried uh, through the sperm of the father. Is that correct? Mm. It's it's not necessarily about the X and Y chromosome. It's more about um, and testosterone flush. Yeah, it's it's more about what hormones do you bathe that brain in. That has a lot more to do than specifically. I mean, you could say X and Y chromosome in the sense that the Y chromosome is the one that produces the testosterone, and therefore you get that. But it's not about the chromosome per se. It's about the products of that chromosome. Now, what's interesting about that is. Um, Um, the Y chromosome doesn't really start to kick in and produce the testosterone required for that um, uh, to a great degree until you're much older. You got to go through puberty to see the spike that generates that. But at the fetal level, the first exposure of the brain to sex hormones, um, that takes place in the fetus. And that's more about the estrogen coming from the mother. Um, And that comes from the gonads and the testicles and Testicles in males, when they produce testosterone, that also gets converted um, into uh, estrogen. So the the male, what is what is known as the male brain, is only a male brain because of how much estrogen it gets subjected to oh. during fetal development, which is a great deal of it. It gets the estrogen, from, yeah, it gets estrogen from the mother. And then it gets the testosterone that the gonads are producing from the Y chromosome. That gets aromatized. So sorry for those who don't have the organic chemistry background. But that basically the functional groups change in the chemical structure of testosterone to make it into estrogen because they're related. They're both products of cholesterol. So that changes into estrogen. And it's the estrogen that actually forms the male brain to be a quote-unquote male brain. So it's not testosterone. No, it's it's um, it's testosterone in an indirect way. It's testosterone being there and converting into estrogen. The female fetus, on the other hand, the ovaries don't begin to produce estrogen until they hit puberty. So they have a lack of estrogen during development. Whereas the males, they're producing testosterone, but it's not the testosterone that's causing the brain changes. The testosterone first gets converted into estrogen, and then the estrogen does its work on the brain to make it into a male brain. So that's a fascinating thing. I see. So, yeah, that's a little different from what I recall. And what I remember learning was it's almost as if the female um, the female is the, is the default setting. Um, and if the Y chromosome, um, you know, uh, hits the egg and, and it gets fertilized, it becomes this zygote, then this triggers the testosterone flush that occurs in the womb. And that's what makes the, um, the, the baby fetus now start forming um, as a uh, biological male, right? The bone structure will be larger. The brain will, will be a little different. However, I also read that if you have the XY chromosome, but there isn't enough testosterone, then it actually continues to formulate as a female, which some people suggest this is why you can get females that have um, more of those masculine features or, you know, what you call, you know, um, tomboys and these types of things like they're girls, right? But they have they have more of that masculine energy because they're they're really an XY chromosome or that's how it started. And there wasn't enough testosterone to continue uh, this process of, of, of shifting or transforming into a full male. Is that inaccurate based on what you're saying or it's connected? So what you have is you have it you have it you have the story part ways just to finish it off is that um, that testosterone that is getting produced from the let's just talk about the fetus for a second the fetus that is an XY chromosome so it's a, a biologically male fetus it is going to produce testosterone that testosterone in the womb before it starts to make its impact on the brain gets quickly converted into estrogen so the mother has its her own estrogen and the fetus is producing estrogen, uh, producing testosterone that gets converted into estrogen and bathing the brain into that much estrogen is what triggers all of the changes or drives the changes that we eventually see that differentiate a male baby from a female baby 
uh, just uh, to start off with like that. So it's a cocktail of the testosterone um, igniting also the estrogen, and that together is what's going to help the boy. No, it's, it's a cocktail of the testosterone converting. So the testosterone disappears, it changes completely and becomes estrogen. So you no longer have testosterone comes out one end and it enters into the brain as estrogen. And that's just the biophysiology of what happens in the, for the fetus. Now, if you have a mother that is producing high levels of estrogen, what ends up happening is that the levels of estrogen that are so high, they go into, they also, the fetus is exposed to whatever the mother is giving it. So for a, let's say you have a female fetus, an XX chromosome fetus. If that fetus gets exposed to a little bit too much estrogen from the mother, that's where you might get this tomboy type of features. Interesting. So too much estrogen can actually get you more of that masculine, energetic female. The more estrogen, the more masculine. That's very that's very counterintuitive. That's so interesting. It's counterintuitive. Yeah. For a lot of students, when I teach this, it's like, what is going on here? That's what's happening. You have to think about it in the sense of the final end product is estrogen. The starting product could be estrogen or testosterone, depends on what uh, sex of the baby you're talking about, the fetus. But the end product that gives you a male-leaning uh, male, uh, type of brain is actually the estrogen that's doing that. So in kind of a poetic way of describing it is the woman that makes the man. SubhanAllah, SubhanAllah. And yeah. it, it also brings up for me, you know, a uh, little bit of the metaphysics, you know, in our in our deen, like this idea of, you know, the Prophet Sallallahu was, you know, this this pinnacle of human possibility that, you know, emphasized or, or excuse me, manifested the perfect harmony of, of what we would call the masculine and feminine energies, right? And the Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala has, you know, ninety nine names, and some scholars say even more than that. But the point is, is for for what Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala still chose. To begin every surah on the Quran except Surah Tawbah with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, which is interesting. Nah. That's the emphasis, you know, yeah. Rahma, which is connected to the womb in Arabic, and of course the womb brings up the feminine or you know this idea yeah. of, of the nurturing mother. And of course the Prophet Muhammad I mean his name means you, you can't stop praising the man, right? But yet, but yet Allah says Wama arsalnaka illa. Rahmatan lil'alamin, right? Even though so many other names could apply. But you see this this kind of um, almost like a default setting of, of uh, you know, this, the metaphysics. And then I'm also hearing here, like, even down to the fetus, you have this idea of um, the feminine or, or this nurturing um chemical which is estrogen you know also which helps the female growth and reproductive uh it's the reproductive chemical but um it and so you you kind of get this uh at least i'm kind of seeing this this consistency as as you're talking what's interesting about this is uh speaking about the prophet is um like uh, he's described as an insan al-kamil right he is the complete human being and in a sense what he manifests when we talk about this complete balance and harmony you just mentioned the 99 names of allah the scholars have have categorized these names under different categories but the most famous or the most prominent one that's usually used is dividing the the names of allah into the masculine or to the jalali the majestic names and the jamali or the beautiful names or the feminine type of uh, names in that sense so the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam manifested a perfect harmony between the two of them and what's interesting about it is if you go through his life at what point did he manifest the jalal the majestic it's very you know when we talk for example when did the prophet ever get angry people can bruise through go through all of the literature all the sira literature you'll find just very few occasions and that tells you that this default setting for the divine attributes and what the world should have is this uh, the jamali it's not the jalali the jalali is meant to come at isolated incidents and then disappear and, and, and allow the jamali to manifest itself um, which is the beauty right says you know my mercy is above or precedes my my wrath and also what came up for me is you know I, I also heard this nice uh, you know um, analogy that Mecca is kind of the majestic energy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Medina is is the Jamali. And exactly. where did the Prophet decide to go back to and he's now buried there, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's these are some interesting meaningful connections here. Yeah. 
Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. So what's interesting, Dr. Muhammad, is with these insights about the Prophet Sallallahu and mercy in, in the deen of Islam, you know, one thing that's also um, striking is that even with my own clientele, um, the majority of people who reach out to me for uh, services, specifically marriage and, and relationship services, are the women. Right. And, 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 and half the time it's like, my husband doesn't want to do this. Right. But I want to start. And then usually, you know, sometimes the men will come, you know, join afterwards, but it's usually the women. I always say they're the relationship keepers. You know, they're the ones who want to maintain the family and, and the healthy relations between uh, husband and wife and the children and so on and so forth. And it's like, again, another observable manifestation that I've noticed in my own work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, which, I don't know. It, it just makes sense if you if you're familiar with the research literature on this, the scientific end of it, and especially on the evolutionary side that looks into. I mean, again, we talked about the insan, the human being being uh, the articulate animal. If you look at the animal world, relationships and cultivating of care and collaboration, all of that stuff, usually is the function of the female in the animal world, and that's what sustains. Uh, tribes of different animal types and, and species and allows them to propagate and do all that stuff. They're the ones that care for all of these things. The males, on the other hand, are usually the ones, you know, I, I always think of uh, something like the lion. You know, the lion just got, goes off in his, he's, the lion ensures that the territory that they have is protected. He goes around, he, you know, urinates on different areas to mark his borders because that's what they use. And Imagine trying that in corporate America. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, if you look at corporate America, I mean, that's what, guys, if you look at how males behave in a lot of different contexts, in career contexts, um, that's kind of what they do. And that is an unnatural thing for women as, as just from my observation, my anecdotal observation and as you just mentioned with you, that's just not something you see. I read um, this thing with regards to um, – I'm not sure if you want to go into this or not, but uh, looking at why are there so many more men in higher up positions and they usually attribute that to discrimination. Why are men making more money and they attribute that to discrimination? But there was an interesting uh, research uh, article that was written on how do women approach the workplace how do they approach their career choices? And what they found was women, first of all, don't apply to a position until they have 100% of the requirements listed for that position. Men are satisfied with about 70%. If I have 70% of the requirements, I'm going to apply. Let's just see what happens. And then the other one is uh, they found that women, for example, when they're negotiating, if it's, just, if it's not a set salary, if it's just a salary where it's like, how, how much do you think you should get paid? Men are more likely to overestimate the, their value <laughs> and women are more likely to underestimate their value. So you can put in all the checks and balances in place and try to equalize everything possible. But then if you're dealing with innate personality proclivities where women are just not going to apply because in general I – and mean, again, we're talking population level here. In general, they're not going to apply until they fulfill all their criteria. And in general, they're not going to ask for – they're going to undervalue their work. And in general, they're not going to work as many hours because we also find from psychology research that women care more about work-life balances. Yeah, I mean uh, to, add on, to add to that, I think you know, there's also just more likely men that are crazy enough to work 80, 100-hour weeks because they don't care – as much about human relations as let's say females right there are men like that they're just like i don't care like i'm a workaholic this is what i live and breathe and if it's going to increase in my you know competitiveness in the world and amongst women making more money being more successful it's like that's the drive which may also suggest why generally speaking i have found that men have more issues with their ego because intrinsically you have to feel very confident and and um, strong about your own security. And this, I think, is exemplified in competitive sports and all the things that, again, men tend to enjoy. Not all men. I'm not necessarily one of those guys who watches sports and yells at the, the TV. But, you know, but I but I can see, you know, how that can be connected, you know, that uh, we're we're it's ingrained in us to know that in order for us to really survive and protect and provide and compete, we have to at least think of ourselves a little highly, right? Or else we're, we're, we're going to get eaten up by the lion out there. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, just because uh, we're just looking at, yeah, there's a spectrum, but there is this kind of general thing that you see amongst the male population versus the female population. If you just look at a functioning society 
and you try to equalize everybody in that society and pretend like they're all going to do the exact same thing. Impossible. You will no longer have a society. Yeah, impossible. You know, the the way society is built up and culture comes about is through complementarities, is through diversity and contribution of different things. Now, what's interesting about just the male and female duality is that this duality is seen in every single thing in life. The heart contracts and it relaxes. Um, you have the... Uh, the um, uh, you have the uh, uh, the breathing itself. The lungs contract and they relax. They, you know they fill up with air and then they they uh, they go they squeeze the air out. You have duality. Have duality is what makes things exist. And it goes down even in Islam to the divine name Allah. You know it starts off with a contraction and then a relaxation. So that tells you that duality is just part of creation and it has and it is not an equal in the sense of same. It could be equal in the sense of equivalent, like in the amount that it contributes, but it is definitely different. It has to be different for things to exist. Right. Yeah. I mean, I always like to remind couples of this idea of asymmetry, balance, or harmony. Yeah. You yeah. know, um, the yin and yang is a beautiful yes. image, I think, which which exemplifies this. What's good about the yin and yang that I really like is, uh, if you for the audience who hasn't seen it, they can go check it out online. Just look at the image. You have it's black and white, but then within the white there is a black circle, and then within the black there is a white circle, and that tells you that there is within the yin there is an element of yang, and within the yang there is an element of yin, which is to say that, and that's why I have a problem a little bit with the descriptive studies of brain differences because it assumes that just because I was able to describe this now that now I can prescribe or I can say what you should be like. Um, you know, people have different potentialities within them, and these potentialities come out sometimes in times of need. I can give you an example of my uh, maternal grandmother, may Allah have mercy on her soul. When her husband passed away, my mom was like three years old, she tells me, and she was a beautiful woman. She had guys lined up, you know, just wanting to marry her, but she had five kids. And for her, she just saw out of her own observation that a stepfather is not a good situation. That's what she observed with regards to her kids. And she dedicated her life to her daughters and her son. And what she ended up doing was, well, the yang has to come out now. So she went out of the home and started working. And she started, she raised these kids and she started to act as both the mother and the father. It's because the potentiality was within her. But when her husband was around, she didn't need to bring that out. Precisely. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense because Taban, there at any moment or in any circumstance, one of the parents could be gone, right? They could exactly. pass away. So it's almost like a rahmah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has this inbuilt uh, mechanism that allows us to potentialize in the other side of that yin or yang that is needed based on our context, right? Um, now, what's also interesting is you find this uh, happening, you know, nowadays too, where you have men and women out in the work field. And naturally, when you're in the work field, especially corporate America, women have to also bring out that potentialization of competitiveness or aggression at times, right? Especially when you're in a very stressful um, kind of climb up the ladder uh, workplace, right? Uh, and then it's hard to almost recalibrate that harmony when you get home because both the male and female are exuding similar uh, energetic traits in their day-to-day -day life, right? So then you have these men who still expect, you know, this nurturing, you know, uh, woman when they come home to, but they're coming home just as exhausted as you, man. You know, don't expect them to make you, uh, you know, homemade cooking every single day like mom did, right, necessarily. So, yeah, there's just a lot of ways it can play out. I don't know if you've seen this movie, The Devil Wears, Wears Prada. There is a scene where Meryl Streep is at home. And Meryl Streep, as the actress, she's playing, and her character is having a fight with her husband. Now, the character of Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada is this cutthroat, just really, you know, go for the jugular type of person. Uh, in her work environment. But then she goes home and it was such an odd contrast to watch her try to play the role of the emotional wife after having been cutthroat all, you know, outside in the work environment, try to play that role. And the husband was just, there's this conflict that was being played out. And it's such a minor scene in this movie, but it's so profound if you really gain a perspective about what that entails. For you to have this dual cognitive, it's like a cognitive dissonance. You have almost like a dual personality disorder. You have to act one way outside and then you have to come and act another way inside. This brings us to the end of part one of episode 13, The Yin and Yang with Dr. Muhammad Ghilan. 
Continue to episode two to hear more about the spiritual and social implications of the yin and yang. Karim Sirajuddin here. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit nurhuman.com to learn more about how I provide personal spiritual and relationship counsel and growth. Don't forget to visit coffeewithkareem.com to see the latest news and updates about this podcast. Please generously help sponsor the show to keep on going at patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem. That's patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem.